never forget a few years ago being at, thank you, son, um, being at a, a Disney World. If you've ever taken your kids to Disney World, you know, you probably still have blisters from it and, <laughs> and credit card bills too, you know. And, uh, and I was uh, uh, out there, you know, looking through the, uh, the little uh, stroller parking place. You know, you got 60 or 70 strollers in there. You got to try to figure out which one is yours. And and, uh, and so I uh, uh, was trying to find our stroller. And there was some other dad in there that looked just as lost as I did. And we eventually found our strollers and we were walking out together. And I looked at him and I go, hey, man, you're doing a great job, dad. And, and he looked at me and he goes, thanks, man. And we pounded it. And it's like there was this sort of sacred brotherhood. Like we both knew exactly how much it cost for us to be in there that day. <laughs> and... Uh, exactly how many hours of work had translated to the amount of money we'd spent to take our kids there. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a, a beautiful sort of fraternal moment between me and, and that guy. And so, um, dads, we honor you uh, for all the uh, thankless things that you do. Um, there was, uh, we watched a video in men's prayer a couple months ago on Mother's Day that talked about how Mother's Day is the number two most celebrated holiday in the world and Father's Day is what number 18? 20? Number Father's Day is number 20. 30? No. You seem so confident. Well, I'll let you guys fight it out later. But it's like Arbor Day is like number 16, you know. Halloween is number 6, and so it's like, you know, there's a comedian that he said, you know, so ghouls and goblins come before fathers? Like come on. And uh, and I think that there's you know, there's something to that. And, and we've got to ask the question, like, what is the deal? You know, it's like Jesus and then mom, like Jesus, Christmas is first. So it's like Jesus. And then your mom is number two and fathers are like number 20 or 30 or whatever. And, uh, and I, th- and I think that if there's one thing that fathers do, um, good, uh, especially in this house, it's that we honor the women that God has, has given us. We honor, uh, mothers and we teach our children to honor mothers. And so, um, I, uh, I, I want us as men to continue to lower ourselves, to lift others up, to not worry about where Father's Day falls on the, the, the list of popular holidays, but to continually honor the Lord in the way that we um, deny ourselves um, to, to demonstrate his kindness and to bless those around us. That's what fatherhood really looks like. Amen. Um, I'm thankful for the fathers that we have here in this house, for the example that they set, for the ministry uh, that they uh, steadfastly um, manifest to this whole house. You may not, I mean, they, we'll have 50 to 70 men together on a Sunday morning praying for you. If you don't, if you're new to the church or if you're not one of the men who's a, a member of this church, I would tell you, uh, you should know that every Sunday morning, the men of this house gather in this room and we pray for you. And we pray for what the Lord is going to do in, in our Sunday morning services. We um, pray for each other. We pray for marriages. We pray for each other's children. And so you should know that whether you know it or not, the, the fathers in this family are contending for you. 
They're standing in the gap for you. And, uh, and that, I think, is a special and sacred thing. So, how are we doing? Awesome. Fathers, you should, in case I forget later, we did bring you jerky. I don't want you to, that's why we, that's why we do it, is for, for the meat sticks. Um, and, and there, when you, when you leave church, when you, when you leave church, there will be a team by the door handing meat sticks to everybody. Uh, so make sure that you grab you a handful of meat sticks in Jesus' name. And it's what gets us through the year, you know? It's knowing when we get to Father's Day, somebody's going to hand me a meat stick. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise God for that. <laughs> All right. We've, we have been uh, talking over the last several weeks about... Uh, some messages sort of revolving around the, the day of, of Pentecost, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, um, and I, I want to continue down that road. I think there's so much more to, to ring out for us. Uh, I, I can't imagine that we're going to finish today even, but I, I'm excited about what the, the Lord is doing. You know, we, uh, I think many of us were raised in a culture that was more like Father, Son, Holy Bible than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know? It's like we believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, and we read other people's stories about them, but we don't have any kind of personal or intimate connection with God himself. But there's a third person of the Godhead in the, the, the person of the Holy Spirit that is God, is equally worthy of praise, is equally worthy of submission, is equally worthy of, of worship and honor, and is currently dwelling within all those who believe. And so, we need to understand the Holy Spirit. We need to understand the ministry, the movement of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand how the Holy Spirit uh, guides and directs and empowers and energizes our lives if we're ever going to live the life that Jesus died for us to live. And, uh, and so, you know, we talked last week uh, about Acts chapter 2, some of the things that, that mark a truly Spirit-inspired uh, movement. If you remember, we talked about the, uh, the sound from heaven that, that came and how uh, all of them, everyone in the place began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we talked about finding uh, fellowship, finding our voice, uh, f- finding, finding our voice, finding influence, and finding family when the Spirit empowers uh, a, a movement or, uh, or this, this, this group or, or community of people. Um, but there's a, a couple other things that I wanted to sort of uh, draw draw out this morning. You know, in in Acts chapter one, uh, there's some some context that Jesus gives, and and I talked about this two weeks ago. That Jesus says, "You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." And then it says this right afterwards, Acts chapter one, I'll start in verse nine. It says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, uh, as, he, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, uh, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. 
Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay, I know that's a little bit of a, of a mouthful. There's something I, I want to point out to you. So the, the time, it, it tells us in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that the time between the resurrection and the ascension, that is the time between the day that they found the empty tomb and the day that they watched Jesus ascend into heaven and a cloud hid him from their sight, was 40 days. Acts 1, 3 tells us that that, that was 40 days. We know that Pentecost is exactly 50 days after the, uh, uh, after the resurrection. And so uh, what we can uh, deduce with some simple math is that the time between the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the time that these people had to wait in prayer in the upper room was how many days? Good job, guys. <laughs> 10 days. And, and this is interesting for me. I, I was so tempted, you know, I've spent the last couple of days sort of mulling this over and thinking like, maybe I'll announce 10 days of continual prayer in the church. Um, but I feel like I should prepare you. There's going to come a day when God says now. And when that day comes, I'm going to announce for the next 10 days, this sanctuary is going to be open. We're going to continue in prayer and supplication before the Lord. And, and we're going to do so as, a, as a, a prophetic alignment between ourselves and our forefathers. Because what happened is, is that they continued. They went to the upper room immediately after the resurrection. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And verse 14 says, they, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So they, they started on day 40, and it wasn't until day 50 that the Holy Spirit filled that room. So for 10 straight days. They stayed in waiting, watching prayer. They stayed postured in the pursuit of the fulfillment of God's promise. And I, I can't help but think when I read this, like how many of us would have given up? Like how many of us really, how many of us really would still be there after 240 hours of waiting? I've got to be honest with you. When we got to like the 60 minute mark, I'd be like, all right now. Did the Holy Spirit get lost on the way? <laughs> Jesus, you made a promise. You know that by day six or day seven, some people's wives were like, how are we going to pay the bills? The revolution's over. Right? At some point, you've got to be responsible and reasonable. At some point, you have to get back to real life. It was a fun three years. It was cool while it lasted, but he's clearly not coming. 10 straight days in, in travail and prayer and supplication. I, I want you to understand that there is, uh, uh, there's probably two points I should make about this. The first is this, that these are the same disciples, Peter, James, and John, the night Jesus was betrayed who couldn't stay for an hour Something happened that made those guys who couldn't stay in prayer for an hour stay in prayer for 10 straight days. Do you want to know what happened? They saw Jesus raised from the dead. They beheld with their own hands the resurrected king. 
victorious over death, having conquered the best hell could throw at him and come out with the keys to death and hell and the grave. They beheld him with their own eyes and it awakened in their heart a desperation, a determination, and a conviction that they never had before. All the sermons, all the miracles, all of the the marvelous things that Jesus did couldn't awaken in them the passion necessary to, to endure in prayer and supplication for 60 minutes. But they... They beheld Jesus alive again on the other side of death. And it awakened in them a passion and a hunger for the presence of the Lord that they never had before. See, this is our problem in the church is that we try to get people to pray to a God they've never seen or experienced. We try to get people to feast who aren't hungry. And they don't want it. I've got a... People talk about how much food their kids eat. We have one kid that refuses. He's never hungry. He never wants to eat. I have to stand behind him and be like, take another bite. (laughs) Take another bite. And then after that, stop watching TV. Take another bite. Stop fighting with your brother. Take another bite. The only way to get that food into your belly is by taking bites of it, right? (laughs) I'm telling you, it's frustrating at the least impossible at, at worst to, uh, to try to make someone eat when they're not hungry. And so for three years, Jesus, he's doing his best. He's trying to produce hunger in these guys, but it's the resurrection that does it. We need to, we need to proclaim that Jesus is alive. How many of us in the church talk about Jesus like he was a great figure that lived? We talk about Jesus like we talk about George Washington. He's a great figure that lived. He taught us some valuable lessons. You know, he's an important figure in history, but no, we need to tell stories, not just about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, but about what Jesus did two weeks ago. People, when they get around us, they need to be able to see that this Jesus we talk about, he's not just a character in a storybook. He's alive today. And all of us are living, breathing testaments to that reality. Jesus is alive. It's ultimately the resurrection that changes something. It shifts something. It flips a switch. It awakens within Peter and James and John a passion for prayer and a passion for his presence that they never would have had. And so they lead this prayer meeting. They gather in this upper room and they say, he told us to stay. So we're going to stay for as long as it takes. Mighty God, that's, I need more people like that in my life. People who will say, what he said is what I'm going to do. When it's uncomfortable, when it's inconvenient, when it's costly, when it's painful, when it's humiliating, when the grass looks greener at the church down the street, I'm going to stay in the word that he gave me. Because it's what he said, right? If it's what he said, that's what we're going to do. So their hearts are awakened to this, this desperation. So they stay for 10 straight days of prayer. And then, as you're familiar, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. Who began to speak? I hope you guys have been speaking this week. I didn't, I, please understand, like I don't preach sermons to impress you. The reason that I teach what I teach is because we need to do something with this, right? And so maybe it's worth revisiting again. Who, who began to speak? Yes, not just the pastors, not just the staff, not just the tribe leaders, not just the people who were gifted at speaking. They all began to speak. And so my hope is that if you didn't get it last week, maybe you'll get it this week, that all of us, every one of us who've been indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God, all of us ought to speak. Now, maybe your speaking isn't that you stand on a, at a pulpit with a microphone and you teach out of the Bible. Maybe your speaking is that you write letters. Maybe your speaking is that you sing songs. Maybe your speaking is that you write a blog. Maybe your speaking is that you just grab a waiter or a waitress and you ask if you can pray for them before you leave the restaurant. I don't know what it looks like, but all of us ought to be speaking. All of us ought to be speaking. Our lives ought to, in every way, declare and demonstrate the, the reality of the resurrected Christ in everything that we do. And so they, uh, they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under the sun. When the sound occurred, the multitude came together. We spent time talking about coming together. You know, I had a dream this week that... Uh, I was in the church I grew up in, in Michigan, and, uh, and I was preaching a message called Stand Together. Uh, I still don't know. I feel like there's probably more. The Lord's going to speak to me about that dream, but um, it's important that we, that we actually come together. In Leonard Ravenhill, I, I, I wrote this down. Leonard Ravenhill said, um, you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. Likewise, he says, if your church is on fire, you will not have to advertise it. The community will already know. So this is, this is our church growth strategy. We're just gonna burn. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you, the proof is in the pudding. Do you wanna know why you're here today? because somebody in this church set themselves on fire. The only reason any of you are in this room today is because there were burning people here and you said, that's who I wanna be around, right? That's what brought you here. And this is, this is the beauty of, of this, this wisdom that Ravenhill shares. It's that, it's that we, we get so caught up in like, you know, coming up with uh, uh, cunning strategies to market our church to make sure that we're at the top of the Google list when people Google churches in Johnson City. We could have named ourselves the altar with like three A's at the beginning. Make sure that we're first in the phone book. <laughs> but uh, that would have been smart, you know. But instead, we're just going to have to set a fire in this place. We're going to have to seek him until he burns in us more brightly than our gifts or our talents or our abilities or our reputations when the thing we are known for is the presence and the power of the living God. The community will already know it. And then, uh, you know, Peter stands up uh, as these people are drawn together and he, he preaches this, this message. It says that they're cut to their hearts and they ask him, what should we do? And he says, well, you need to uh, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus. And, uh, 
be baptized in his name. And, and, and then it says in, in verse 41 of Acts 2, it says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls, say souls, about 3,000 souls were added to them. So, so Jesus says, I want you to go to the nations, but first wait in Jerusalem. And, and that's a word for some of you. You've got big dreams, big hopes. I'm going to go change the world for Jesus. The same, the same Jesus that says go also says wait. Because going fueled by ambition and not led by the Spirit is fatal and fruitless. But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that is to say when you're empowered and directed by God himself, anything is possible. And, uh, and so, uh, 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 so Jesus tells them, go make disciples of all nations. He tells them, but first wait in Jerusalem until the promise is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit's going to come. So they, they stick with him until the ascension happens. They watch him taken up into heaven. And then they spend 10 days in intense prayer, waiting, prayer and supplication. And over the course of these uh, 10 days, they stay hungry. They, they find themselves being knitted together in, in homothumadon, in one accord, in, in one passion. They, they find a singular passion. 120 of these believers, they come together in this singular passion. And, and, uh, and then when the day of Pentecost had fully come, on day 50 after the resurrection, 10 days after they began praying in the upper room, uh, the there came a sound as of mighty rushing wind. But the, the end result of this, and those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 what? 3,000 souls were added to them. You should know about me that before we started this church, I spent more than a decade going after one thing, souls. Everywhere that I went. Every conversation that I had. Every day of my life and every breath in my lungs, I went after one thing, and that one thing is souls. And you should also know that I stood with all of my evangelist buddies who were very confused that I was going to plant a church in Johnson City when God had opened all these doors for me to win souls. And I said, I don't know why, but I'm just convinced that I'll actually be more effective at reaching souls with the gospel of the kingdom by planting myself and my family in one city and pouring my heart and soul into the people closest to me than I ever could be by chasing a spotlight or a platform around the world. And so you should know, my passion for souls has not dwindled. I'm more committed to and focused on souls than I have been ever before in my life. But you should also know that if you're born again, congratulations, you just joined the team. It's we were after you at first, but now that we got you, um, you get to join us in being after your next door neighbor and your coworker and your kid's teacher and the barista at Starbucks. The barista at Starbucks really needs Jesus for sure. No matter what Starbucks you go to or what barista it is, you let them have it. (laughs) Uh, You should know that the Holy Spirit is poured out and the byproduct is souls. We don't, we don't get, I'm, I'm tired of Pentecostal churches. Uh, 
ignoring the souls of their community so that they can roll around on the floor and laugh with each other. I, I have a, a friend that led, that, that is the, currently the pastor of a church that had a, an amazing revival years ago. And I, I asked him, you know, what was it like for you to come into the church on the other side of this historic move of God that happened in this church? He wasn't the pastor when the revival happened. He came in years later. And he said, you want to know what we had? We had $10 million of debt. And we had a church in the middle of a neighborhood full of brothels and crack houses. And he said, I, I would love to tell you that the revival touched the world, but the revival didn't even touch our neighborhood. This is wrong. I shouldn't have to tell you, this is wrong. It's not acceptable. For millions of people, millions of people came to this church over the course of the years that this revival was happening and nobody thought, hey, let's help our neighbors. Let's see the people that live right next to us. Let's make sure that our community feels what God is doing inside our building. God cares about souls. He doesn't just care about the career of the preacher on the stage. Lots of, lots of preachers got careers because they preached at this revival. I'm convinced that God is grieved over the fact that people got careers and they overlooked souls. Please hear me. I, I want us as a, a church to experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that, that we don't want that stuff. I want signs, wonders, and miracles as bad as anybody, but never at the sake, uh, never for the sake of, of souls, never in, in the place of souls. God is more concerned with your soul than he is your breakthrough, <laughs> your miracle, right? Like God, God would rather you come to salvation than you receive some mighty prophetic word. Amen. So 3,000 souls are saved. And then it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, verse 42 of Acts 2. Then fear came upon every soul. I'm going to preach about fear. I've got, I, thank you, Lord. Maybe next week. I'm going to talk about the fear of the Lord. Because you don't get it. It's like, every time I start talking about the fear of the Lord, everybody's like, yes, that's right. Everyone else needs to understand that. <laughs> um, yeah. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So can, hey, can I, can I talk to you about something that doesn't have anything to do with my message? And it's probably more scandalous than we're supposed to be in church. I'm going to talk about politics for a second. Um, people will read that and say, see, socialism is a good idea. Everyone sold their possessions and goods. They divided them among all as anyone had need. And I would say my problem with uh, socialism is that uh, I can live like this in a capitalist society. Meaning if I want to take the goods that I've earned and sell them and divide the money among people that are close to me, uh, I have every right to do that. I could buy a plot of land and we could all build houses on that land and you guys could grow food and hunt animals and, you know, do repairs and, you know, babysit the kids and some of you could teach and some could make clothes for people and we, like, we could do that, right? Um, but if we, uh, 
were to, um, to say, well, see, the Bible loves socialism, so let's vote in democratic socialist leaders in America, what's going to happen is that the goods that we have, the possessions that we sell and the money that we make, it's all going to go to like, I don't know, Ukraine instead of people in our community that have a need. It's all going to go to like, I don't know, gender reassignment surgeries for teenagers in Portland instead of, instead of like the actual needs of actual people in our life. And so I, I know that this isn't uh, the, the sermon you expected or that I expected today. <laughs> but this is worth, this is worth saying because I understand navigating the political landscape right now can be really confusing. And, and it's hard to, it can be hard to read things like, they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods. They divided them among all as anyone had need. And so it's, it's easy to, to read that and say, well, how could we vote against socialism? It's, it's not that I'm against sharing things. It's that I'm against being compelled to share things by wicked people. Or, or that I'm, I'm against allowing wicked people to determine who I share things with and what things I share, right? And so... Um, I, th I think that we should be the kind of people who will sell our possessions to give to the need as, uh, uh, to give to, to, to those in our community who have need whenever those needs arise. We ought to be people who are radically generous and considerate uh, of the people in our community. I just don't think that um, the government are good stewards of our money. And, and so I will vote for whoever is most likely to leave me alone Just, just pave the roads and keep us out of war and like, you got my vote. That's it. It's easy. I'm easy to please. So that we can live the kind of radically generous life that God has called us to live. I want all of your businesses to succeed. Not because I want you to be wealthy and I want you to drive luxury cars, because I want you to be able to be radically generous. Because I don't want there to be a single need uh, a, a single unmet need in this house. I don't want there to be a single unpaid bill in this house. I don't want there, I don't want for any of us in a, a medical emergency to be thinking about, I can't afford this. Like, I want all of your kids to be able to go to the school that you want to send your kids to, right? Like, th this is the, the dream of, of heaven. This is the dream of the kingdom. And I think that, uh, that giving 50, 60, 70, 80% of our income to the government and expecting them to take care of our community instead of us is irresponsible stewardship on our part and certainly irresponsible stewardship to a dangerous degree on theirs. So, amen. <laughs> now, uh, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, Peter and John, verse, this is Acts chapter 3. This is where we're, we're aiming today. We're finally getting to the message right now, just after noon. So, um, now Peter and John, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms for those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes 
uh, on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. For all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, I want to stop there and pull a couple things out. In verse 1, it says this. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. Where were Peter and John going? To the temple. What were they going to do there? See, I I think that here's, here's one of the issues that I had for a long time as the traveling itinerant evangelist. It was that I would get invited to events that were evangelistic events. It was like, we're going to be preaching the gospel. You know, we're bringing in this expert, Maddie Montgomery, who's going to preach the gospel. So bring your unsaved neighbors, bring your unsaved friends and family members. You know, make sure that anyone who needs Jesus comes to this event. And while I'm flattered by that, the truth is that I I always sort of have this weird... uh, resentment toward the idea of an outreach event. Can I, can I tell you, everything we do as believers should be an outreach event. Everywhere we go ought to be, when I, when I take my kids to football practice, that's outreach. When I go to, to, to Waffle House on a Sunday morning after men's prayer with my two oldest boys, that's outreach. When I go through the drive-thru at Starbucks, you better believe that's outreach. Like, when I, when I go to a, a, a restaurant, when my wife and I go to a restaurant, I always tip 100% of the bill. And then I always write, Jesus loves you. Because this is outreach. Everywhere that I go, all the time, is supposed to be evangelistic. Except for, and this is a side note that we can talk about another time, except for this. Except for church. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Hebrews 10.25, it's become a core verse for us during COVID time when everyone was telling us, stop, you should forsake the gathering of yourselves together. But it doesn't say you shouldn't forsake the gathering of whoever you can get into the room. So church is supposed to be the gathering of the brethren. That's what we're doing right now. However, every other thing that we do ought to be evangelistic. But this is interesting to me because these guys aren't out in the street thinking, how can we reach some needy soul? They didn't get together in the morning and and say, all right, we're going to go do some outreach. Let's, let's go. Lord, get us ready. They didn't listen to Maverick City and hype themselves up. We're going to get ready. Like, here comes, here comes some outreach. They're on their way to go pray in the temple. See, this is the, the thing. I, I think that one of the common mistakes that we make is that, is that congregants in the church look to the pastor to dictate when evangelism happens. Right? It's like, oh, we're going to do the 4th of July party. Make sure that you're ready. We're going to win some souls at 4th of July. No, that's not. You should be winning souls all the time. Everywhere you go. You have my permission. If, you, if this is what you're waiting for, you have my permission to sh- share your testimony, to share the gospel with whoever you meet, and to invite them to start a relationship with, with the God of heaven. You've got permission. If you need a signed permission slip. I'll get it to you after service. 
But when we gather together, we gather together to, to worship. And this is the beautiful thing, and you see this repeatedly actually all throughout the book of Acts, is that the, 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 the apostles, they're on their way to the church. They're on their way to fellowship with the brethren. Their primary agenda is I wanna spend time with my family, and on the way I'm gonna invite other people to join the family. See, this is the, the beautiful thing about what, what Peter and John are doing here is that their agenda isn't we're gonna go heal some sick people. We're gonna go win some souls. It's like we're just gonna go spend time with each other. Peter and John went up together to the temple, and then we're gonna spend time with God at the hour of prayer. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. They're spending time with each other, and they're spending time with God. Can I tell you, uh, you, you know, you want to know, like, what's your purpose in life or what does it look like to really walk this thing out? Let me make it really practical for you from Acts 3, verse 1. Spend time together and spend time with God. And you'll find that on the way to spending time together and spending time with God, he is going to put you on a collision course with divine appointment after divine appointment after divine appointment. Person after person after person who needs exactly what you already have. And so Peter and John, they, they went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms for those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. So there's something about this man being laid daily at this gate. He's, he's been lame from his mother's womb from the day he was born. And... He is laid at this gate to the temple every day or daily. And um, there, I have heard some teachings from friends of mine, uh, cessationist uh, friends of mine, who are skeptical about the willing, the, the teaching, about teaching from me and others like me, uh, that Jesus is willing to heal. And they would say, Jesus went into the temple repeatedly throughout the scriptures. He would have gone through this gate hundreds, maybe thousands of times in his life. He would have walked right past this man over and over and over and over and over again, but Jesus never healed him. And so it's, you can't say that Jesus always wants to heal because if he did, he would have healed this man. This man wouldn't have been uh, laid there daily all throughout the three years of Jesus' public ministry and still never received his healing. There's two issues that I have with that. You can't derive theology from things that are not in the text. You can't, you can't infer theology based on non-textual assumptions. It's like if, if the Holy Spirit didn't think enough of that message to include it in the text, then it's probably not important enough to build your life on. And... The second point is, is this, uh, Jesus did heal this man. We're reading about it right now. <laughs> what does Peter say to him? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. See, this is the problem is that we think that if Jesus is going to do something, that Jesus has to be the one to do something. We are living in an age right now where Jesus is touching lives, he's meeting needs, he's uh, transforming culture, and he's using you and you and you and you and occasionally me to do that, right? 
See, this is the, 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 the beauty of the kingdom. It's that we have all become the body of Christ. And so Peter reaches out his hand and he pulls this man up on legs that have never worked before. And the body of Christ touches this man and it transforms his situation in an instant. See, the mistake that people make in terms of their interpretation or their application of the scriptures is that they look at Jesus as if he is a singular manifestation of sonship in the earth. But Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. He's the archetype for what a son looks like. He's not the exclusive manifestation of sonship. He's the initial manifestation of sonship. He's the introduction of a new paradigm to the world. And so we look at Jesus as the standard set for what sons of God can become. And so the son of God meets up with the other son of God and they're walking through the beautiful gate on the way to the temple to go and pray together and they see this man and the son of God gets down into this man's business and heals him. See, we're not giving credit where credit is due. Jesus did heal this man. And we read about it in, in Acts chapter three. You know, I, sh- I could say this. There's another, probably another dimension to this. I'll never forget years ago, uh, I was in uh, Australia and uh, I think I've told you the story that I, I was walking off of a plane and I said to a flight attendant, Jesus loves you. And then he said, no, he doesn't. You guys know that story? It's one of my favorites. Uh, because I, you know, I'm, I'm walking off a plane and there's several flight attendants uh, there at the front. And they're all saying, bye, thanks for flying with us. And I say to one of them, hey, I want you to know Jesus loves you. And he goes, what? I said, Jesus loves you. And he said, no, he doesn't. And I love that answer because here in America, people would say, thank you so much. How could he not, right? <laughs> but in Australia, like he's really honest about, about his, uh, uh, his unbelief. And, and so he says, no, he doesn't. And, and I said, oh no, he doesn't. I'll prove it to you. And he said, okay, how could you prove it to me? And I said, because I could be on a thousand other flights you could be talking to a million other people. The odds of you and I ever meeting are about one in eight billion, and yet here we are. Jesus sent, of all the people who could be talking to you today, Jesus sent me onto your plane to make sure that you know that he sees you and that he loves you today. I'm the proof that Jesus loves you. And, uh, and so we have this conversation. Now, standing right next to him is his coworker, a young lady, and she's just sort of watching this, like, this is awkward, you know? And uh, so I finish the conversation, I leave, and, and, and I'm, as I'm walking out, it's like, should I talk to her? And the Lord's just kind of like, no, you're good. And so, so we leave, and uh, uh, my, my friend who is traveling with me, we leave, and, and we're out in the hallway, and we're talking to some people. And, uh, and my friend, he's praying for this guy who's, I think he's on crutches, something wrong with his knee, and so he's praying for his knee, and we're just sort of standing there. And, uh, and the two flight attendants, they walk by, and the female flight attendant who was there for the conversation that we had, uh, she, um, her, her, the guy that I talked to dropped something probably 20 yards away from us, before us. And so when they get up next to me, I say, hey man, you look like you dropped something back there. And so he turns and he goes back to get it. And the female flight attendant, she's standing right next to me. And uh, we're just kind of waiting for him to go grab this thing. And she turns to me and she goes, does Jesus love me too? And I said, 
Uh, absolutely he does. You got a second chance. This guy didn't, you know. Uh, and I said, well, what do you know about Jesus? And, and she started to share a little bit. She'd been to church a few times as a kid. You know, we get to talking right there, and this guy is standing there, and he's rolling his eyes and huffing and checking his watch and stuff, but she's like desperately hungry. She's asking all sorts of questions. Well, what about my sin? Well, good question, you know. How could he accept somebody like me? I, yeah, that's good. Well, what if, I, I, I don't know very much. It's like, okay. Um, but if you know him, that's, that, that takes care of everything. And, uh, and so right there in the middle of this hallway with her angry, you know, annoyed, anxious coworker standing three feet away from her, this flight attendant says, I want to give my life to Jesus right now. And we pray there in the hallway for her to give her life to Christ. And, and I, I look back at that story and I think it's, it's so beautiful to me that the thing that made her curious, the thing that provoked her to curiosity or, or hunger or jealousy about the things of God is that someone did not say Jesus loves you to her. That what could have been a, a little casual comment, that, that the fact that she didn't get it made her go, hey, what about me? Does Jesus see me? Does he love me? And made her ask, made her ask the question, the question, does Jesus love me? The question that changes everything. And, uh, and I, I love the story because I think we, we, we fall into this trap of thinking uh, that it's what we do, our, our productivity that uh, glorifies the Lord and advances his kingdom. But the truth is sometimes it's what you don't do. That, that we read in Acts chapter three about a healing that might have just been a footnote, might not even have been included in the story if Jesus would have healed him two years earlier. That sometimes it's, it's the not yet that sets us up for the glorious breakthrough that establishes and advances the church. In fact, at the end of this story, Peter and John preach the gospel in the temple and 5,000 more people come into the kingdom. 5,000 more souls are reached with the message of Christ. And so you should know that the same God that says go sometimes says stay. The same God that says now sometimes says wait. And so... Uh, and so Peter and, and, and John, they're about to go into the temple in, uh, in verse three and fixing his eyes on, on him with, with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now, I, uh, I, I want to sort of let you into the way that I imagine this. Uh, I, I can't say that this is in the text, but I, I, I know that uh, different cultures have different customs. When we were in, you know, here in the States, you, you have people that you know, make a sign and they stand out and say, everybody help me, right? And they, they draw attention to themselves. Uh, when uh, Miss Candace and I, years ago, we were in Prague, uh, Czech Republic, and, uh, and we, when we were there, there were people uh, begging who would, would lay down flat on their face, their face buried into the ground. You couldn't see their face, couldn't see what they looked like, their covered in rags from, from head to toe and they've got their face on the ground and their, and their hands out or, or a hat in their hands as, as a, a, a way to, like, to, to communicate humility by prostrating themselves in front of whoever would come by. They're beggars, like at the lowest of the low. At, and I mean, you can see it in their body posture, everything about them. You can see it in their clothes. They're beggars. 
destitute, without hope if you don't help them. They're on, literally on their face. And I think that whether or not this man's posture was like, was like that, face down, prostrate in front of these people, whether his physical posture was, was prostrate or, or laid low in front of uh, Peter and John, the truth is his, the posture of his soul was prostrate and laid low be, before Peter and John. And so there's, there's this sort of... Um, lowly posture that you see in, in, this, in, this, uh, in, in this man's uh, life that he's, he's carried there daily to, to this gate so that he can just beg for change from people's pockets. But Peter says to him first, he says, look at us. Like, I want you to lift your eyes. Sometimes you have to look away from your problem to see the solution. You should know that where you look matters. And it, it devastates me. It never ceases to break my heart how, how many people, even in, in this church or in the church at large, are so fixated on their issue. Oh, you know, you got your, your spouse left you or you got a, a bad diagnosis from, from a doctor or, or you're struggling with money, you don't know how to make ends meet. And, and you know, you... You obsessively fixate on the problem and you wonder why you can't see a solution. Can I give you the best piece of advice I could give you? Uh, When you're in a moment of crisis, you should go where the love is. You know? Find people that that love you when you're in crisis and when you're not and go do whatever they want to do. Can I tell you, the most healing thing in in my life in times of crisis, when I'm face to face with the biggest problem I've ever faced and I don't have an answer for it, is I take my kids in the backyard and throw a ball around. I wrestle on the floor with my boys. They're not intimidated. They don't really care if I find a way to pay that bill. Just as long as I'm still there to tuck them into bed at night, right? You go where the love is and it, it, it fills you up. It strengthens you, it empowers you, it inspires you, it gives you direction and hope and it reminds you that life is bigger than your problem. So it matters where you look. It matters where you look. Can I tell you where not to look? WebMD. (laughs) It matters. It matters. Listen, if you got, if you're, yeah, if you're, you know, you got a pain in your knee. It's like, oh, I'm dying for sure. I got six weeks. <laughs> Better get my affairs in order, you know. <laughs> this is the problem with the information age in which we live. It's that we are, we are just a few clicks away from destruction and doom at all times. Like if you were to get on, you know, you get on the phone two weeks ago, China is going to kill us all. Get on the phone four, four months ago and Russia's gonna kill us all. It's like, we're just, we're just doomed no matter where you look. Here, can I tell you, it matters where you look. See, because when you look at the Father, you, you hear him saying, well, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You are my beloved. You are accepted. You are welcomed in me. 
And, uh, and so Peter, understanding this concept, he calls this man's attention away from his need, away from his lack, away from his weakness, away from his humiliation. And he says, look at us. And verse five says, so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said this, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Here's the problem. Uh, I, I think sometimes we ascribe Bible language to Bible times and we have a hard time making it, uh, I hate to use this word, making it relevant to, to our modern Western culture. When Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk, it would be something like this. Jesus told me to tell you, stand up and walk. See, he, this, this, I think in the name of Jesus, it's like, it's the thing you say at the end of a prayer, right? It's like sincerely, click send. He's going to receive that email because I said in the name of Jesus at the end of it, right? Like that's the, the, the mistake that we make. It's the common misunderstanding. But, but this is, uh, uh, I think to, to make this principle practical, you should know that, that if we do something in his name, that is to say that we do something on his behalf, it's, it's like my wife has the authority to go to my bank and to sign in my name. Now she, they, they know that Candace Montgomery, she has authority to do business on behalf of Maddie Montgomery. And so she can show up and she can sign in my name. She can sign on my behalf. And so this is why Jesus says, anything you ask in my name will be done for you. That is, that is to say that there's enough in his account to deal with whatever transactions you need to make. And he's given us authority to deal in his name. And so Peter takes this authority in Acts chapter 3 and he says, Jesus told me to tell you, stand up and walk. Now, who knows if this, if this beggar sitting in this gate knew the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's no telling. Who knew if this man had ever heard Jesus speak, if he'd ever heard the rumors, the whispers about this man who claimed to be the Messiah, who died on a cross and was buried and resurrected again. It's hard to imagine that he might not have, that, that he wouldn't have overheard people talking about that, but we don't know. Here's the problem though. Just uh, a few weeks prior to this, this revolutionary, this very influential leader named Yeshua of Nazareth, he uh, was put to death by the Romans. They released Barabbas. They arrested Yeshua. They uh, had him scourged, and then they nailed him to a cross, and he died, and he was buried. And then there was this big scandal a few days later where the Romans misplaced the body. I want to make sure that you hear that was, I'm being sarcastic. I don't, <laughs> like, he came back from the dead. But you know how politics is, right? It's just full of fake news, and so they're like, there's no evidence to suggest that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's what they say. That's what they say when they want you to not believe something, but they haven't had time to investigate it yet. There's no evidence. It's like, well, you haven't looked for any, so. 
They told me there was no evidence the election was stolen like six hours after the election happened. It's like, none? You guys already investigated it? That's incredible. There's no evidence that the COVID vaccine is killing children. It's like, you'd be amazed at how many things there's no evidence for that if you refuse to look for evidence. Uh, there's no evidence. <laughs> what am I talking about? There's, there's, a, there's no evidence that Jesus re- was resurrected from the dead. We just misplaced the body. It was an administrative oversight, right? And uh, so... So there's this big scandal, but then people start seeing him all over town. More than 500 people personally encounter him. They talk about it for years and years. They tell their children and their grandchildren. They all start writing it down saying, the world needs to know a man came back from the dead. We all saw him die. We all saw him resurrected. Nothing like this has ever happened before. This is incredible. And, uh, and so this same man commissions his disciple, Peter, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all nations. And so Peter meets this beggar, this paralytic, lying on a mat in a gate like he had day after day, month after month, year after year, his entire life. And he says, hey, Jesus of Nazareth told me to tell you that you can stand up and walk today. And he reaches his hand out into this man's mess. He took him by the right hand, verse 7, and he lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Everybody say immediately. immediately. Immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Can you imagine a man that has never walked a day in his life, the, the atrophy that would have occurred? He's never used his leg muscles before, not once in his life. Even if he had the strength, learn, uh, walking takes balance and coordination that he's never employed before. In an instant, immediately, this man goes from never having walked and never having had the ability to walk to not only having the ability but also having the know-how. This is beautiful. This is beautiful for me. He took him by the right hand. He lifted him up. Immediately, his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. There are two points that I want to make. The first point is this. It does not matter how long you have been in your dysfunction. God can take you from where you are to where you should have been in an instant. It... It does not matter how many years your marriage has been loveless. It does not matter how many years you've been in poverty. It does not matter how many years you've been living out the the brokenness that came as a result of the trauma you suffered as a child. It may have been decades, but I'm telling you, God can take you from where you are to where you should have been all along in an instant, in an instant. In an instant, he can undo not just the atrophy of the spiritual muscles that you've been refusing or, enable to, uh, or unable to, uh, to utilize, but also he can give you the knowledge to be able to utilize the liberty or the breakthrough that he's sending into your life. I want you to understand this. You may have been in rebellion for years, but right standing with God 
is only ever one yes away. One moment, one touch, one instant, one encounter. This is the glory, man, this is the glory of God that you can run with all of your might away from him for 30 years and turn around and find out that you are only ever one step away. Isn't that good news? The second point that I I need to make about this is, is this. Verse eight says, so he leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. You notice that Peter and John didn't have to tell him, hey, you should worship. You should jump around and praise God. Give that a try. See, when God touches your life, no one has to beg you to worship him. I've described the way that this church worships as if people actually believed that they were saved. This is how they all would worship. If, they, if, we, had actually, if we could actually remember who we once were and compare that person to who we are today, nobody would have to beg us to dance and sing and shout and jump around. Because we have seen the glory of God demonstrated in our lives. I have seen the glory of God demonstrated in my life. Nobody has to beg me to worship him. Nobody has to beg me to act a fool for him. I will embarrass myself for the rest of my life for him because he has been that good to me. That's the least, that's the least I can do. It's the least I can do. Nobody had to beg this man to worship. It came as a natural response to the revelation of the goodness and the love of God toward him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I feel like there was, I th- let's stop. Let's turn our attention to him. Can we do that? I, I want to just, I don't know if I need the band. Would you stand up? Come on, here's, this is what we're going to do. We're going to recognize the two things. There's two groups of people that I think God's going to minister to today. The first group of people are people who you thought that because you've been in dysfunction for so long that it's gonna take that long for you to get out of it. And I came to tell you this morning that one moment in his presence, one touch from his hand, one word from his lips is enough to bring you from where you have been to where you should have been all along. You hear that? Like I understand you may have been a drug addict for 20 years and he can break the back of that thing in one instant. You might have been struggling with clinical depression and thoughts of suicide for as long as you can remember. And I'm telling you, he can break the back of that thing in one instant. One word from his lip, one word from his mouth can heal your marriage. You hear that? One word from his mouth can awaken your children to the reality and the revelation of his kindness and his love for them. I'm telling you, the brokenness that you've been suffering under, the weakness that you've been suffering under, the dysfunction that you've been suffering under is only one moment is only one moment away from being broken once and for all. And the second group of people, the second group of people that are, are going to be ministered to this morning are, are these people. The people who uh, have been, you've been thinking, uh, uh, oh, I don't want to worship God uh, in a crazy way because I don't want to be embarrassed. You should know. Nobody is going to be more embarrassing than Michael Turley. So... 
just, so you just, you just let it out. The standard, the standard has been set. You just be who God has called. No, no, I'm just kidding. I love Mark. Uh, you should, you should know this, that, that God deserves your authentic gratitude. And listen, if you can take just a minute to think about the life that you should be living today and compare that to the life that you are living today. Friends, all the statistics say that I should be in jail, strung out, lost, depraved, depressed, and suicidal. And man, the life that I'm living doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. If God hadn't found me weak and broken and without hope, and touched my life and brought me from where I was to where I should have been. He just is worthy of my praise. He's just worthy of me to, to run and leap and dance and shout and I don't really care who sees me. And we'll, we'll talk more about this man's story. Everybody was real offended with him. They were very confused and trying to get him to shut up and he's like, listen, I don't know what to tell you. Jesus did it. What I never could have accomplished, what my friends never could have accomplished, what my family never could have accomplished, Jesus did it. He did the impossible in my life. And you may not like it, you may not believe in him, you may not agree with it, but my life is a living testament to the fact that God is real and he loves me a whole lot. And so listen, I want to tell you, if you are If you're ready for the breakthrough you've been waiting for, if you're ready for the healing that you've been needing, the provision that you've been needing, if you've been living under the weight of of brokenness for too long and you're ready for that moment right now when he finally reaches into your life, gives you his strength and his grace and his glory, I want you to get to the front of this room immediately. Come now, come now, come now. Come on, beggars are finding home today. Paralytics are finding strength today. Come on. Come on. And and I want to call to those of you who have seen his power, who've seen his glory, and who've experienced and encountered his love. Let's praise him this morning like he actually did something in our life. Let's worship him this morning like he's actually been the God of breakthrough for us because he has been so faithful. He's been so good. He's been so kind. And let's give him the praise he's worthy of. Come on. Come on. You know, I feel like thank you just doesn't do justice to what we want to say to him. And so let's spend the rest of eternity finding new ways to tell him thank you. Thank you that you saw us when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you made a way for us with your own blood to come boldly before the throne of heaven. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your beauty. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, Jesus, that when we are weak, that you are strong. And that when we were lost, that you carried us home. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that that we as a family have found each other in, in this big, crazy world. Thank you that you brought us together to cheer each other on, to celebrate your goodness together and to to spur each other on toward love and good deeds. God, we pray that you continue to bind our hearts together, 
continue to, to knit together this tapestry of, of love that you're weaving here in East Tennessee to the glory of the Lord. And, uh, and use our lives, God, as, a, as an offering that would be pleasing and honoring to you in all things. And we pray this in your name. Amen. I uh, want to tell you, before, before we release you, we're going to get you out of here before one. Um, in Jesus' name. Uh, I want to tell you one, one thing. So this week I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a great leader in, in this city. And he was telling me about a, a report that several people sent him from Barna, the, the research group. They just recently published a report in which they asked like five or six questions um, to uh, a, a large group of individuals all the way, uh, all across the United States. And, um, and these questions were, uh, were sort of, uh, do you affirm these five or six doctrines that are central to the fundamentals of cr- the Christian faith? Do you believe in the inerrancy and authority of scripture? Do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe he is, is, is going to come again, judge the nations? Just some, some sort of basic faith questions that all Christians should be able to enthusiastically affirm. And they found that across the United States, the, uh, uh, the number of people that uh, affirm those things is, is around, the average is around 4% of people across our nation that affirm fundamental Christian doctrines across the board at least all, all six of the, the things that they asked them. But they found that there's one location in the country where people affirm those truths uh, at a rate significantly higher than any other place on the continental United States. And that place is the Tri-Cities of Northeast Tennessee. <laughs> and that for some reason, for some reason that, that this place... Uh, 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 affirms those doctrines at a rate of about 21%, the 21% of the people here. So a rate about five times higher than the national average. And, um, you know, if I had to give credit to anybody, it would be Paul and Sharon Collins, I'm pretty sure, you know. <laughs> and uh, Anthony and Ashley Garola, for sure, I think had a, a lot to do with it. Um, but uh, I want you to know that it's hard to see sometimes when you're in the middle of it. But what God is doing is, is reshaping history. Amen. What God is doing right here, right now, yeah. is supernatural, substantial, and critical. And, uh, and so our continued yes, our continued faithful labor in the direction of righteousness is going to bear fruit. People are going to start looking at the Tri-Cities and then looking at Portland. <laughs> and they're going to say, well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, you know. We need to return to the principles of God's word as a nation. We need to return to the fear of the Lord. We need to return to the proclamation of the, the love and the Lordship of Jesus in all, in all things. And we get the chance to demonstrate to the world the kind of communities that come, uh, the, the beauty of, of a community built on the truth of God's word. Amen. Guys, I love you and I cannot tell you uh, how privileged my, my wife and I feel to be able to serve the people of this house. Thank you for being here with us this morning. 
Um, blessings to you and your home. Happy Father's Day, dads. And uh, we will see you back here on Wednesday night at 6.30. Thank you guys so much. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you are impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.